Hey, you. Yeah, you. If you or someone you know is struggling with anything mentioned on today's program, please, 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 please email me at authentic1 at gmail.com. That's A-U-T-H-E-N-I-C-K, the number one, at gmail.com. I am available 24-7, 365 to help in any way that I can. I have resources. I have open ears, an open heart, and tons of hope. I've been freely given all these things and would love to give them to you. Be good to yourselves and each other. Follow me on Twitter using the handle at Authentic and my dog Marla on Instagram at djmarla.jean. I can't get these memories out of my mind And some kind of madness has started to Welcome, welcome to the show. Ah. This is authentic, where we get authentic. Yeah. My name is Nicholas Thomas Fitzsimmons Vandenhavel, but most people just call me Nick. And this is my show, Authentic. Get it? It's like authentic, but instead of tick, I put in Nick. Authentic. Okay, cool. And with me as always is my dog, Marla. Marla, come here, baby. Say hello to all of our listeners. Nothing, huh? Are you still alive? Okay. Okay, I saw her move. Anyway, here on Authentic, where we get authentic, we talk about all things recovery. Well, what do I mean by that, all things recovery? Well, what I mean by that is if you are still living and breathing on this earth, you, yes, you are in recovery from something. As for myself, I am in recovery from alcoholism. I am an alcoholic. I am also a drug addict. I have an eating disorder. I'm a compulsive gambler. I have bipolar disorder. Really? The list could go on and on and on. But lucky for you, the show is not about me. It is about two people. First is my guest, TJ. Second is the one person that TJ's testimony is most certainly going to help today. He is going to save a life. Because we here on Authentic are here to tell you that you are not alone. Without further ado, TJ calling from afar, my very first guest calling in. Wow, what a lucky man. TJ, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself in any way you see fit, sir. Thank you, Nick. My name is TJ. I live in southeastern Wisconsin. I am a diehard Green Bay Packers fan. Oh, thank God, you are among friends. We Scotty's got to stick together. Is that not right? Exactly. Go Pecco. Go Bucks. Go Brewers. Go Badgers. All of the above. All right, TJ, enough about sports. Why are you here? Why are you on Authentic tonight? Talk some about what has happened in my life. 
regarding uh, an illness that I have called multiple sclerosis. Commonly known as MS. That's the uh, most common, the easiest way to put it. Less clumsy than multiple sclerosis. TJ, what is multiple sclerosis? It's a nervous system disorder caused by inflammation of the the nerve linings. The nerve impulses move, move along the nerve pathways. If you have multiple sclerosis, there's an uh, exacerbation is when there's a problem. During an exacerbation, there's an inflammation along the nerve pathway and it blocks uh, nerve impulses from moving. And when the inflammation goes down, it leaves a scar along the nerves. That is what is sclerotic. Multiple sclerotic sites happen when the disease progresses and the nerve impulses are impaired and it causes a number of different physiologic symptoms, Are these such it, as numbness or weakness or poor balance or a variety of different things. What symptoms do you have today? I've had quite a number over the years that I've had MS. Currently, my balance is poor. I have numbness in my uh, legs and feet and some weakness in my legs. TJ, are you aware, I did a little homework, I'm super excited to talk about this. Real quick, <laughs> are you aware, <laughs> fun fact everyone, 2.3 million people worldwide have MS. Did you know that? I had no idea that was that many. I, had, I didn't know that. 2.3 million out of a worldwide population of about 7.8 billion. You are not that unique is what I'm trying to tell you basically. <laughs> you are not that fucking special. Did you know that women are three times more likely than men to have multiple sclerosis? I knew their likelihood was greater. I didn't know the three to one ratio. I didn't know that. Is that unique or special or lucky or what? (laughs) I really don't know what the fuck that means, and I probably won't put that into the final recording. I just wanted to sound smart for just a second. (laughs) Thank goodness this show is not about me and not about statistics, so let's get into it. TJ, I always ask my guests what their upbringing was like. What was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up in a small town in northeastern Wisconsin, and it was a marvelous little town to grow up in. It was comfortable, it was safe, it was fun. In fact, the home I grew up in was built by my maternal grandfather. It was a nice home, and we lived in a number of different cities in Wisconsin over the course of my childhood and young adulthood. But I grew up in uh, small-town northern Wisconsin for for the most part. As you got older, what did your family life look like? Hmm. There were four kids in the family. For the most part, we were an average household. And one of the difficulties in my household, my father had an alcohol problem. The uh, consequences of that are obvious in most households. There was a lot of tension in the household relative to me to the drinking. It's something we simply lived with and accommodated to, and my father would uh, at times get treatment, get better, and then relapse. But it had been a problem for much of his life until he went for treatment about 25 years ago and got sober and was sober for the remaining 20 years of his life, which was wonderful. You probably know that children take on certain roles in their family if they have an alcoholic parent or if they have an alcoholic family member that lives in the home. What sort of role did you take on in that alcoholic household while your father was still actively drinking? Uh, my role in the family is, family role is called the family hero, the one who tries to be as good as possible and grow up and be mature and 
tried to help out in the household to try to do as much as I could to limit the amount of anxiety in the household or tension in the household so as to limit the likelihood of my father drinking. Now, obviously, I was powerless to control his alcohol use, but that, that's the role I fell into. And in the home where there's alcoholism or drug addiction, people tend to gravitate toward roles to survive the anxiety they're living with. How do you know so much about this? How do you know so much about this? Because I do that for a living. (laughs) And what is it you do for a living, if you care to disclose? Uh, Over the years, I've been a director of alcohol and drug treatment programs, both substance abuse as well as mental health counseling for the past 45 years. Let me say, TJ, you are on the right show. However, (laughs) we are not here to talk about alcoholism or your family or the role that you played in your alcoholic household. We're here to talk about you and your MS and your life in recovery because that really is, by my definition, what recovery is because you are obviously still living and breathing because you're talking to me right now, which means that you are in recovery. And it just so happens that we're talking about a fairly rare illness that occurs. MS is, what is that classified as? Is it like classified as an an autoimmune disorder of the nervous system? I'm not able to have the same type of immunology from the infections or exacerbations that are caused in the nervous system. Is there a cure for MS? No. There's treatment for it, and there's many different medications that are used. Some work, some don't. Depends upon type of MS a person has and other contributing uh, medical factors. Some are more. Some people with MS are more debilitated even early on to the point of being uh, unable to walk. Some have what's called exacerbations and remissions. Exacerbations are when it flares up in their symptoms. When the exacerbation dies down, then you're in remission. The nervous system calms down again, and sometimes there's leftover injury that never repairs. Sometimes whatever incapacitation or difficulty during the exacerbation goes away. So it varies. All the cases are similar but vaguely different. I'd like to talk about when you first started feeling symptoms. Obviously, at the time, you had no idea what the hell was going on. When do you remember first having symptoms that you now know were symptoms of MS? Yeah, in retrospect, my first symptoms, I remember back when I was a uh, junior in high school. So you were what, 16? Yeah, 16, going on 17. And you're how old now? I'm 70. 70? You've basically been living with symptoms of MS for... 53 years. 53 years of symptoms in MS. What did these symptoms look like when you were a junior in high school? I remember specifically one day walking home from school. I'm walking down the street and I could feel a numbness in my chest my chest and my stomach. I had no idea what it was. I did not have an injury. I didn't. There was nothing that precipitated it that I knew of. I felt this numbness and it was unnerving, but I didn't pay much attention to it. I went on. It lasted, I don't know, four or five days to a week, and then it subsided and went away. Did you tell so anybody I, about I, it? I, no. Why not? It didn't seem to me significant enough to talk about, and I don't do a lot of talking about that stuff anyway. Why is that? Why why don't you talk about that stuff? If <laughs> I'm just speaking from my own experience, if I was 16 years old and I had numbness in my chest and in my stomach that was happening for up to a week, I might have said something 
to a friend, maybe a younger sibling. Why didn't you say anything? What is it about you that you don't like to talk about those things? I guess it sort of goes with what we had talked about a few minutes ago regarding that family hero role. Don't want to show the vulnerabilities or shortcomings because I've got to keep up, keep up front of things that are fine and dandy and take care of things. My personality is not one to complain about or cry about my, short, my difficulties anyway, so I just sort of pick up, handle it, and go on. Maybe not complain about it may not be the right term, but just to address it, to talk about it. Do you think that was directly related to your alcoholic household that you grew up in? Maybe peripherally. After the exacerbation, the numbness subsided. There was, there was nothing, no big deal. Again, for I, as, as I recollect vaguely, nothing for four or five months. And then I had some more numbness, and then it would uh, subside. That was 67, 68. It was not a big deal. During that time, I was uh, working in a job during summertime and on Christmas vacation. It was a tiring job. I moved furniture for a living, and I was a truck driver. You know, I would work 70, 75 hours a week. I didn't know it, but I was sort of pushing my nervous system to a limit that I, I ought not to have been, but I didn't realize that. Anyway, it didn't cause too many other troubles until about... Uh, Two years later, when I, went, when I went away to college, I remember very specifically, in retrospect now, periodic exacerbations and remissions. However, in my freshman year, I think it was in college, I was sophomore year, one or the other. In any event, we were playing football out on a big field on the campus. And I was running, running down the field, and suddenly my left leg started to get weak, and I couldn't run. Nothing, I had no injury that would precipitate it. I, it just, I felt the weakness. I was frightened, and it, this was significant. And it got to the point where I was dragging my foot like a club foot. It was very weak. So I went to the hospital. I went to see a doctor. They hospitalized me. I was in the hospital for a couple of days, and they did some neurologic tests. I met with a neurologist after I was discharged from the hospital, and he said, I'll tell you what I think it is. He said, I believe it's MS. He said, I can't tell you that for certain. We'll need to see what happens from here. Could be MS, could be, and they named one or two other things. He said, they'll have to see how it goes. So I was unnerved, but I thought, well, that can't be it. It'll pass. Then about uh, two months later, went to see, see a friend of mine in Madison. He was at school in, at University of Wisconsin in Madison. And I went to see him, and I walked into his apartment, and he said, what's wrong with your face? I said, what are you talking about? He said, when you smile, only half your face goes up. And I didn't realize that, my, that I was having the exacerbation, but I had weakness on the, that either left, right, left or right side of my face or my mouth. I, didn't, I don't I remember which. And as soon as he said that, as soon as he said, there's something wrong with your face, I knew. You know, I knew. <laughs> and my gut told me, that's it, I got it. And I said that to him. I said, I think I got it. He said, oh, no, I can't be. I said, well, I don't know, but that's what I think. The next week, I got back to where I was going to school, called the neurologist. He said, come on in. So I went into his office, and he examined me, and he said, yep, that confirms that my diagnosis it is MS. And I, I was uh, stunned. I wanted to jump out the window. I mean, I'm not suicidal, but I thought, are you serious? And I was uh, uh, 19, I think. He just started telling me about how it's treatable. It doesn't need to be debilitating. It's not going to kill you. It's not fatal. And there are some medicines, and you really need to get a neurologist that you see and that sort of thing. I left his office, and I took a bus back to the 
college where I was going to school, and it was a long, <laughs> a long bus ride. What were you thinking about on that bus ride? Do you remember? Yeah, I was angry and scared, angry at how the heck this happened, uh, and scared because I didn't know what to expect. had these vague things, well, I want to die. Well, that's stupid, and I didn't want to die. I just wanted to sort of erase what was just said to me. When I got back to the campus, I went to see my best friend, and I told him. And he was the first person I told, and he was wonderfully supportive. What did he say to you? I don't recollect. I think it was generally a supportive, oh, that's terrible, that that stinks, you don't deserve this, you'll be okay, you can handle this, that kind of stuff. I mean, it wasn't terribly in-depth, but he's a person I knew and trusted, and I, I wanted to tell somebody. When did you tell your parents? The next day I called them. Later that day, my dad drove up to where the school was to offer support. What kind of support did your father offer you? Do you remember? Yeah. The predictable, we love you, we'll do anything we can to help you cope with this, we'll pray for you, and we're sad to hear it. It was genuine. My mom and dad were marvelous. One of the things that happened when I went, came back home to the Milwaukee area, uh, I went to see a friend of mine. This friend is a man who was a quadriplegic. He had had an accident when he was 17 years old. He dove off the shallow end of a lake and snapped his, head, his neck back and broke his neck. And he went from being a strong, aggressive 17-year-old young man to being an almost dead quadriplegic for the rest of his life. I came back uh, to the Milwaukee area area where I was living and went to see him and told him because I knew he knew what it was like to <laughs> to run up against a wall like that. Talked with him and his wife, and his wife, who was a nurse, referred me to a neurologist. That's how I started seeing the neurologist. After that year, I was done going to the school up north. I came back to the Milwaukee area for the balance of my education. I continued moving furniture for, for that year. I suppose it was foolish, but I thought, ah, it's not that bad. What do you and mean? What, that why bad. would that be foolish? With somebody with MS, why would moving furniture be foolish? Uh, because it dramatically strains uh, the muscle and the nervous system, and it gets you extremely tired doing that kind of work. So this strenuous and exercise, this heavy lifting, makes your MS worse. Is that correct? Yep. Excessive work extremes of anything tend to exacerbate the, the problems. And the funny thing is, is that part of the symptoms of MS are pain and exhaustion. <laughs> that would be hard for me to discern. Well, yeah, I'm tired. Well, yeah, I'm in pain. I've been moving furniture all fucking week. <laughs> I don't have physical pain from the MS. Some people, in their symptoms, they do. I don't. I've never had pain, physical hurt kind of pain from the MS. It's been either the weakness or the numbness. As a matter of fact, that brings to mind something else that happened when I started, when I began graduate school. My first semester in graduate school, when it came time for finals, I had an excessive numbness in my, in my hand, so I couldn't hold a pencil to write to do the exam. Therefore, I took oral finals my first year in graduate school. As with the other times, the numbness receded. It's been fine. It's been vague a little bit since, but not bad at all. But I had to change my life. I had to change what I was... I had to quit moving furniture, and I found a new job. And I started working in a mental hospital on the maximum security ward. That's a little bit of a change. <laughs> but in a way, it dramatically changed my life, because working there changed what I was going to be doing for a living. 
He also gave me the, both the impetus and the support to get into graduate school, and my career took off from there. There's some side effects, or I'm, I'm sorry, some peripheral consequences of the MS, which have been marvelous, that I didn't know about when it happened. It's been an interesting ride. In any event, in the succeeding years, I would have periodic exacerbations and remissions with the MS, would be treated with uh, medication, which worked, and it worked. So I had the exacerbating, remitting type of the illness. I've been, I, th I consider myself quite fortunate to have been able to continue to function as long and as well and as well as I have. And I do not uh, consider myself uh, disabled by any stretch of the imagination. I just need to make some accommodations to... What do you consider yourself if you're not disabled, if you're not crippled? What are you? Who are you? Well, I've got some level of impairment from the MS, but it changed me in terms of my career and what I do. I'm also far more cognizant of the trauma of both emotional or addictive disorders than a lot of other therapists. Because I, I know what it means to get a disease that you didn't get on purpose, that you can't control, that you are powerless to, that there's no cure for. Is MS hereditary? Did no. you get any sort of explanation as to how this came about? Were there any viruses that you got when you were younger? Was there any sort of explanation or was it just kind of bang? Happy 19th birthday. Yep. You didn't it was get just kind of bang. And after I found out about it, I sort of dove into researching MS. I read everything I could on it to try to figure out what brought it on, what I could do to control it, how I could keep it from progressing, what research has been on cures, what the medicine is, and they don't know for sure what causes it, and they still don't, and I've been looking for better than 50 years. Some of the medications work, some better than others, depends upon where you're at in the progression of the illness, and other contributing uh, medical factors, of course. I'd like to go back to a question that I was driving at earlier. Do you label yourself as a disabled person? No, absolutely not. Why not? In fact, I'm, I make a point of not talking a lot about my MS to much of anybody other than my family because I don't want to be either treated poorly and not get a fair deal from somebody else because of it, nor do I want to, do I want to be treated special or be given extra benefits. Just treat me squarely for what I do so I don't talk about it much. And for many years during the progression of the illness, when I did not have obvious obvious uh, disabling or impairing symptoms. The vast majority of people in my world had no idea that I had MS, and most still don't. The ones who see me now can because I'm, I've progressed to the point where I'm using a walker because my balance is poor and I've got some weakness. So that's, that's obvious. Even then, I don't make a point of talking about it unless the person asks me and if it's someone that I care enough about to tell and... Uh, I'm just cautious about who I talk to about what. How many people would you say know about you having MS? Oh, gee, I don't know. Ballpark. Probably a couple thousand because I've seen so many people over the years. And I know there's people wonder about it and think about it and gossip about it. Ultimately, I can't do much about that. Right. I'm talking about the people that you have told that you have MS. Oh, a couple hundred, at least. That would be at the most. Do you think telling people that helped you or hurt you? Or both? I don't think it hurt me. Well, then how did it help you? Nah, I don't think it, I don't think it made a big difference because if, someone, if it would be a benefit to my relationship with someone to tell them, then I would. I don't talk about it when it comes to dealing with clients because I think that's 
sort of projection is uh, not reasonable as, as a professional. I don't talk about myself in the counseling, even though it might help them to understand that I can identify with some things. I don't do that because that muddies the water in terms of the professional clinical relationship. In terms of people in my personal life, my family, I remember when my kids were young, I made a point of not telling them about my MS until I thought they were old enough to get it. Being a, a little kid or an adolescent is tough enough anyway. The last thing they need is to worry about something that seems kind of overwhelming and, and frightening. I waited until the kids were 12, 13, something like that. And then I talked with each of them individually about it to give them an idea about what the MS is and how it affects me and how they may uh, see it. Even at that point, though, they weren't seeing that much of it because my symptoms were not that obviously uh, identifiable. But I, I didn't want to be surprised about it or be held in the dark about it. But I told them about it, and I did. I waited until they were old enough to digest it or make some kind of sense out of it. You tell so few people about it, and now you're talking about it on a podcast. Why are you talking about it on a podcast if you don't like talking about it really at all? I think it might be of uh, some help maybe to some folks who've got who've got it or who are other folks who are struggling with other personal difficulties that either may be embarrassing or frightening or that they're worried about may help them to come to some level of resolution with it. Well, you've come to the right place. And thank you for being here from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for being here to tell your story tonight because I know you're going to save a life tonight. I, 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 I literally mean that. If someone is struggling, maybe not with MS, but with a disease, with a virus, with something that is incurable, and they want to end their lives because they don't see the point in living anymore, I guarantee you, you will save that person's life. So thank you for being on Authentic and being authentic. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, TJ is going to talk about how he got some H-E-L-P help.
back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. No, this isn't Mr. Cotter. This is Arthur Nick. And we are talking to TJ about his MS, multiple sclerosis. He just talked with us about his experience. TJ, let's talk about how you got some help. Finally, geez, you alluded to, or at least you talked about in the experience portion that you were given the diagnosis and you did some researching, you did some digging. What did you find out about how to address your MS? What I found out was I needed to take care of myself in terms of diet, exercise, weight, and rest. Before I was diagnosed with the MS, I had gone on a diet. I lost about 75 pounds. I had been uncomfortable with my weight for a time. So I lost the weight, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm fortunate that I lost that. I lost it because excess weight is a drain on the body and the nervous system. So I had lost the weight, and I've kept my weight even ever since then. I'm about 100 pounds less than what I was at uh, my peak. So I also I didn't drink excessively. I, I don't have an alcohol problem, but I was a freshman in college, and I was doing stupid freshman college drinking crap. So I, I gained a lot of weight, and I had... Uh, I drank too much. But I part of my weight loss, I dramatically cut my alcohol use because I was getting sick and tired of it anyway. Since then, my alcohol use has been average to minimal. It's not a big deal in my life, and it never has been. So uh, alcohol and drugs are not a part of my life. My weight, I maintain. I exercise and work out regularly. For quite a number of years, I was a runner. That helped uh, a lot. I never thought I would run, but once I started, I really got hooked on it. Running sounds terrible. I didn't run a lot. I didn't run excessively, but I would run about uh, three or four miles three or four times a week, and it kept me in great shape. It felt wonderful. I think it helped me in terms of my MS. It's a great place to get out and be alone. I didn't wear headphones. I'd just go out and run and think and pray and dream about a vacation and just it's a nice, quieting time. And with especially with the kind of work I do, it's nice to get away and just not hear anything that is extreme. I also uh, meditate. I took some training in something called biogenics, which is like biofeedback without a biofeedback machine. And I used to do a lot of training of people in the treatment programs I ran, how to do the biogenics. And I do it myself to bring down the overall stress levels and nervous system tension. Can you explain that briefly? What is biogenics? Biogenics is closing one's eyes and focusing concentration on a body process. For example, closing your eyes and imagining your feet to be becoming extremely heavy and comfortably warm and focusing on that perception to the point where you really begin to feel it. And it's maybe four, five, six minutes on your feet, then move up to the legs and repeating quietly to oneself, for example, my feet are heavy and warm to help keep your mind focused on it because it's too easy for the brain to get flipped up and thinking about something else like needing to pick up gasoline or whatever it is. So like some sort of some sort of mantra, if you will. Yeah, it slows the mind down. The point is to try to slow down brainwave activity. The point is to focus on something. Whatever you can focus on your finger, just look at it and focus on it. What will happen is that the brainwave cycles in your brain will start to slow down. Your head won't be bouncing all around. A lot of the folks who I work with who are anxious, one of the best things they can do in terms of their anxiety disorders or if they have sleep troubles is to do a meditation like this and focus on something. Another thing that I did was I got back to my faith. And I was raised Catholic and I was an altar boy till I was out of high school and all that sort of thing. In any event, I had fallen away from my faith and I got back to it 
in my late 30s, early 40s. That's been a big help to me, my faith. It helps me to be calm. It helps me to focus. It helps my sense of trust and belief that things will work out just fine. My faith is a big part of my life. What did your spirituality look like when you first got diagnosed and you said you didn't really come back to your faith until you were in your late 30s, early 40s? What did your spirituality look like between that time, between your diagnosis and when you came back to your faith, as you said? It didn't look like much. I didn't do much. I was. I still believed in God, but I was not practicing my faith. I wasn't praying. I wasn't closing my eyes and looking at God and thinking about Him. I, I, I was. I was just kind of doing nothing. It was on the, sort of the back burner. I, I believed, but I was not uh, active in my faith or my prayer life. It's not like I'm genuflecting all over town now and being a preacher, but what I do do is when I lay in bed at night, I I pray silently. But I'm dealing with people in therapy oftentimes. I'll talk with them about their faith life, whatever faith they're in, their call. What I found over the years is that anybody who's experiencing significant personal troubles, if they don't have some level of faith on some level, they have a much tougher time handling uh, life's crises. Not like an absolute, but it just seems to work better. Faith was part of what helped me. Uh, my exercising, my diet, some of the people that I talked to. One thing that was uh, marvelous is that at one point I met a woman. It's the woman who I'm married to now. That made a big difference, too, in terms of the focus and strength in that relationship. Her faith, quite frankly, was strong, and that helped me as well. Having someone of that uh, strength fall in love with me and me with her was marvelous. That relationship helps helps me a lot in terms of my own personal sense of comfort and support. And at what time during that relationship did you disclose to her that you have MS? Uh, after she and I started dating, and we kind of fell hard for each other fast. We really kind of were head over heels. I think it was like the second or third time we went out. I said, things are really moving fast with you and me, I, but I, I want to tell you that I've got MS, and I explained to her what it was. I said, you need to know that, because before you get too deeply involved, I want you to know, know what, you, what you've got. And she said, I understand. Thank you for telling me. Let's keep on. So it was an immediate acclamation or acceptance, and she's been a marvelous support ever since. I'm fortunate. Is that the kind of response you got from most people that you told about your diagnosis? Most folks say, gee, I never realized it at least before my symptoms became obvious. I never realized it. How long have you had it? Boy, it's a raw deal. You really handle it well. Good for you. People are marvelously supportive. And now that I'm somewhat more impaired in terms of I use a walker and people hold a door open for me, most people are so gracious. I don't find people to be snotty or small about it. Most people are very non-judgmental, gracious, and pleasant. I really appreciate that. I'd like to talk about treatments? What sort of treatments that you started when you had your diagnosis? What were those first treatments like? Were you taking medication? Were you... What What did that look like? Uh, the early treatments were medication. Oral and, pills or... Yeah, pills. Mm -hmm. And they worked. I'd have an exacerbation. i go to the neurologist. Uh, he'd do the exam. he prescribed the medicine. And within three or four days, the symptoms would dissipate and within 10 days, nah, a couple of weeks because you can't stop the pills right away. You have to slowly downgrade the toxicity so you don't have a, a detox problem. In any event, it would work. And that went on that way for 
Lord, I bet you 20 years. I thought, I could, you know, I'm never going to be disabled. I've got this licked. And it worked that way for a long time. And then those medications uh, were helpful. They had some side effects, but not dramatic. After a while, those stopped having the same effect, partly because uh, my DMS was progressing. And then I tried different medications. One thing I, I did once, I went to a test they were having on hyperbaric medicine. Hyperbaric is when you go into a hyperbaric chamber, like you go into after you, if you come up from underwater too quickly, keep you from getting the bends. It's a big chamber. In the chamber, they crank up the pressure, the barometric pressure. Are you in air is, or in water? What? <laughs> no. I'm having a hard time envisioning no. this. What happens is you go to a hospital, you go into it, it's like a big chamber, and they close it, and then they, t- they crank up the pressure in that chamber put on a mask, and I'm taking breathing 100, 100% pure oxygen. So I'm breathing 100% pure oxygen under twice the normal atmospheric pressure. The theory was that that would help the nerves, and it worked. There is no nothing I ever did that worked as well as that. But that was a research project, and the researchers said, well, it didn't prove its validity, so it was not okayed for insurance coverage, and that's a shame. What did that do to you emotionally when you heard that it was being discontinued and that you could no longer use that treatment? I was irritated. I thought this doesn't make any sense. My opinion, and this is only my opinion, was that uh, the drug companies didn't, didn't want that to work. Because drug companies, some are good, some are not so good, some make a lot of money. And maybe truly the research findings were that it doesn't have enough validity that they could authorize it. But for me, it worked. It was a shame. I did hear, I did some research, and I did hear that there is a treatment facility, I think it's in Florida, where they do hyperbaric treatments, uh, even now, but I know insurance does not cover that. So it was disappointing. So I've tried everything else I could. Uh, Every time a new medication comes out, uh, I try them. Some work to some degree, some don't. Some have side effects that are unacceptable. Most of them don't do much. I'm at a point now where I think I'm in the progressive stage of the MS, not the exacerbating remitting stage like it was in the early years, but now more progressive. One of the sad things for me about MS is they don't have anything which repairs previous nerve damage, and they don't have any cure to stop oncoming exacerbations from happening. They've been at this for 50 years, and they're still, they got some, they've made some progress, but not, not an awful lot. That's a damn shame. Why do you keep trying these new things? Why not just give up? Because I've got faith and hope, and I'll tell you, that's where my uh, faith helps me. I've got faith that everything will eventually work out for the best in the end, and I trust that what happens, happens for a reason, whether I can see it now or not. That sort of commitment, as well as that personal prayer, helps me deal with some of the frustrations, but it also keeps me coming back for another swing at it and for the next thing that comes up, or... uh, Continuing to do my exercises or whatever. Giving up is not in the the cards. MS taught you balance. Balance of life emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. It taught you balance at a very young age, which is highly uncommon. How have you used that knowledge and that feeling of balance to help others? Uh, I think I can, I'm far more tender and responsive to the whole idea of the sense of powerlessness and coping with uh, dramatic personal difficulties that they didn't have coming. The 
sense of sadness and fright when some of those stronger parts of their, of their life start to weaken and fall apart. And the joy of really getting a hold of a certain part of, of your life that you thought you were powerless to affect any change on. I personally get a lot for myself out of what I do for a living. It feels marvelous to know that I've really touched and helped some people. I just got a Christmas card from a lady who was in a treatment program that I ran two or three years ago, now yeah, three years ago. And in the Christmas card, she said, I am now clean and sober three solid years. You touched me so deeply that, you know, that sort of thing. It's just marvelous to get that sort of thing. And I'll tell you, I get a lot out of that. I get a lot out of the emotional payoffs that I, of what I do for a living. On a daily basis, or at least intermittently, do you feel shame when you are out in public with your disability or your difficulty, better worded, your difficulty physically with your walking? No. Why not? Because it's not a right or wrong thing. It's simply the reality. I've got frustration that I'm not as agile or as mobile as I used to be. That's irritating. I'm not as irritated with and frustrated with some of the incapacitations as what I used to be, but it's more of an irritation, certainly not a, not a sense of shame or humiliation, because it's not. It's just what it is. Then, as I said earlier, I think I'm, fort- I think I'm fortunate that I am not more incapacitated than what others who may have this are. As I said, some people who I went to at different programs I was in were dramatically incapacitated at a very young age, 20s and younger, and I'm not. I mean, I'm 70, and I'm mobile, and I get around, and I travel. I plan to keep up. I keep up with that. What would you tell someone that does feel shame, that opens up to you and says, TJ, I have MS, like you. Every time I go out in public, I am ashamed of how I show up physically. What would you say to that person that is feeling shame because of their MS? Uh, I, I think I'd try to steer more toward taking a sense of pride that they are surviving a significant illness as well as they are. Because most folks who have a any sort of significant medical diagnosis, many, I don't know most, many folks who have a significant medical diagnosis do not cope well with it, and it tends to exacerbate that problem. And I think that worry and anxiety about the severity of whatever the malady may be tends to speed their decline. I, I think taking a sense of pride that they have the courage to say, enough, i got to get something done. I think that's one of the biggest things that folks who struggle with either mental health or substance abuse or significant medical diagnoses struggle with. Coming to the their own moment of truth to say, look, that, that's enough. This has got to stop. I've got to accept the reality of it and start handling it. That's a big deal. So I think taking some sense of pride in coming to a genuine acceptance of what they're living with and how to handle it. What does your treatment look like on a daily basis? Can you walk me through what that looks like today? Literally today. What did your treatment look like today? The medical treatment? The medical treatment? We can start there, sure. It's not much because most things don't work anymore. I take some medicine to help uh, minimize muscle spasms in my legs. And that's it. That's it. Yep. Now, other things that I do, as I said, I do meditation, I do exercising, I walk as much as I can. It's more difficult in winter. I don't want to take a slide. slide. And I'm cautious because my balance is poor. I'm cautious to be be certain I don't fall. Because if I fall, I could hurt an elbow or hurt a wrist or something like that, which would then make walking all the more difficult. So I'm cautious going up and down stairs, and I'm cautious walking so as not to take a spill. What would you say to a person that was diagnosed with MS today, 
five minutes ago, I left the doctor's office, and they told me that I have MS. What would you say to me? I think I would uh, tell them how sad I felt for them because it's a difficult thing to hear, and it's frustrating as all get out because they didn't have it coming. I would tell them that they need to make changes in their life in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of rest and alcohol or drug use, the way they cope with their stresses, kind of shape their end. about the lifestyle changes they had to make to help assure they have, a, have as slow a progression as possible and that uh, they quite frankly take advantage of whatever current or new medicines come out and pay attention to what the research says, read about it and learn something about it so as not to be mortified or surprised by things and to say their prayers. As Hollywood Hulk Hogan would say, take your vitamins and say your prayers. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, TJ is going to share his H-O-P-E. He's going to share some hope. Where TJ is most certainly getting authentic. All right, TJ, we've made it to my favorite segment of the show where you talk about my favorite four-letter word. No, it's not fuck. It's H-O-P-E, hope. What sort of hope do you provide to those with MS? Hope that some effective treatment comes into into play. Research goes on all the time. I'm I'm convinced something will happen in terms of a something to, to retard the progression of the illness so it doesn't need to keep on for a person who is, isn't as yet incapacitated. And hopefully something that will uh, repair nerve damage. A lot of times those sorts of uh, findings come up in research uh, for other things by chance. And that's something I pray for all the time. So I'd tell that person, keep the hope up. 
don't ever give up the hope and pray for the right thing to happen at the right time. TJ, what scares you the most about your MS? My inability to uh, stop the vague, vague progression that's going on right now. What does that make you feel? How do you feel? Frustrated and irritated because I usually get done what I, what, I need, what I need to get done in my life. And this is one thing that I don't have the level of control over that I've got control over much of the rest of my life. So it's irritating. If you could have cured your MS 50 years ago, would you have done it? Absolutely. Do you think you would be the person you are today if you did cure it 50 years ago? No. I ask you again. Would you have cured MS 50 years ago if you could? I probably would have back then because I didn't know what, a, what benefits would come from it, nor would I have believed it. Are you grateful that you have MS? No, I'm grateful that I've handled it out how I have and that the other blessings have come to me, either because of it or in spite of it. It has been, uh, it's good for humility and it's uh, good for the faith to get something like this. That's very well said. I like that you didn't bring it to the MS. It always comes back to you as an individual. It really has nothing to do with MS at all, does it? No effect. I made a point of early on that I would not define myself as having that I have MS. It's something, it's illness that I have, but it didn't uh, define me. So you are TJ, who just so happens to have MS. Yep. Not TJ, that's the guy that has MS, you know? Which is one reason why I don't talk about it a lot, because I don't want that to be the defining characteristic of how people see me or my relationship with them. If it's there and now that it's, it's become more debilitating, it's obvious. But even at that, that's not the, the prime focus of what I am or the relationships I have. It happens to be there, and that's reality, and that's life in the Big Ten. That's pretty much it. Have you ever considered getting involved with MS awareness, any sort of those movements? No. I find a lot of a lot of the people involved with it are kind of over, overwhelmed by it and passive to it. And some get into a rather strong victim mode, and I, I don't want to do that. That's so interesting. Because if you think about other awareness movements, and I'm thinking specifically of cancer awareness, go get a mammogram or go get a colonoscopy, things like that. But not with MS. I find that interesting. Not only because cancer is a quote-unquote, for the most part, curable disease, MS is not. It's a much quieter disease, isn't it? Yep, and most of the other illnesses that you mentioned have aggressive, effective treatments, so they don't have that with MS. They've got some, some things to help dull some of the symptoms or slow the progression, but in terms of really kicking it and making it happen, they don't have much. What do you think... It's frustrating. What do you think is the most important piece of your MS, of TJ having MS? What do you think is the most important piece of that that helps you to help your clients with their struggles? I think coping with the sense of uh, frustration at getting something you didn't plan to get or deserve to get or were prepared to handle. 
sort of grieving the loss of normalcy. One reason why I've tried to make a point of keeping my life as unaffected by, undefined by, and unimpaired by the MS as possible. It's not the whole show. It's not my definition, but it's part of the part of the deal. What did your grieving process look like? Oh, I did some yelling. I did some crying early on. and resigning myself to make some changes that I, that I had to make, which turned out to be a benefit to me, but at the beginning I didn't see that. And what does your grieving process look like today? I always hold out hope for some sort of effective treatment to deal with current symptoms, to stop progression, or to maybe repair uh, previous nerve damage. I always hold it, have that hope, and I pray for it daily. And I live my life in a way so, so that I stay as mobile and unimpaired as I can, as long as I can, so when something does come up, it's not going to be too late. It's something I always think about. I mean, i got to watch. I don't fall when I walk down steps and so forth. There's sort of an undercurrent of, boy, maybe someday, and I pray for it. MS is identified as a clinical disease, correct? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You work with people that are, as you said, addicts, alcoholics. Do you think that addiction is a disease? Yep. Why? Because the way someone with an addiction reacts to mood-altering chemicals is different than someone who doesn't have the addiction. Alcohol, I don't believe, causes alcoholism. Because look, all the people who drink them doesn't cause the trouble. However, if an alcoholic drinks things go off off the deep end. I think uh, addiction is a highly inheritable genetic disease. The person who has the addiction needs to, number one, stop drinking before anything can happen, and then begin to work on the issues they need to work on in their own life to get into a strong, healthy recovery and avert a relapse. doesn't mean they're cured, but they're recovered. Progressive, incurable disease is what addiction is. So is MS. It's progressive and it's incurable. Alcoholics don't become alcoholics on purpose, and people with MS don't get that on purpose. So there's a lot of similarities in that vein. There are some obvious clinical behavioral differences, but still, those core issues are the same. Do you view yourself as being recovered or in recovery? I'm recovered. Not cured, but recovered. And why are you recovered? Because I made the decision a long time ago that I needed to accept the reality of the illness for what it was, as opposed to denying it or minimizing it. I sort of came to my moment of truth, like, that's it. This is the reality of it. you got to handle it. No point in dancing around the symptoms or denying the reality of it. And I think that's what happens for most folks in addiction as well. Once they come to their moment of truth, they can finally begin to get into a genuine recovery. And most folks with addiction need to go through quite, quite a few bumps and bruises before they get there. For me, I needed to experience the dramatic symptoms and loss of control that the MS brought on to really bring myself to the point of coming to that emotional acceptance. A man I used to work for would always say, if you're struggling with acceptance, he said, really said, you know, the only way to get back in control is to give it up. He said, you know, until you finally come to the point when you say, I can't handle this, i got to quit this fruitless venture, i got to make some changes, you're not going to make any changes. The sad thing about a lot of folks is they end up dead before they ever come to their moment of truth or what they call in the program the surrender process. That's where there's some real freedom. Who was the most important person in your life 
or who was the most helpful at the beginning of your dealing with your MS? Was it a doctor, a therapist, a friend, family member? It was a friend, the man I told you who had broken his neck. Him, because he did it. When he snapped his neck, they didn't give him a chance of living overnight. And his dad did everything he could for him and with him, and he slowly pulled himself around. And even after he had stabilized, the emotional trauma was dramatic. And I think he was a miraculously powerful man. He never got up out of bed again, but he got several patents in the U.S. Patent Office. He developed his own telephone answering service business. He was a bright, talented, successful man in spite of being incapacitated. He was something. What would you like to say to him today? I love you and I appreciate you. And what would you like to say to your wife who accepted you and your disease completely? I am grateful to you, sweetie, and I love you. And I am fortunate. And we've got a darn nice life. TJ, what do you want your legacy as a human being to be? Oh, that I treated people well and I was honest. <laughs> That's it, huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's plenty. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had somebody come up with it so quickly and have it be so <laughs> basic. <laughs> that I have a lot more to it. Also that I've got a good sense of humor. Yeah, I can tell. Add that to it. <laughs> I can tell. Even though this is some very heavy subject matter, it's great that you brought it down to really that, that quick answer is that you were honest and that you treated people well. Isn't that life, don't you think? Yeah, it's kind of the way it is. Everything else is just so much over analysis. And I do analysis for a living. It's like Trust me, I'm an addict. I get where you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> Got to give it a rest. All right. Now we're going to have a little bit of fun. Are you ready? Yep. Do you think but I say fuck too much? Once in a while when it counts. <laughs> Do you think I say fuck too much on my show? You've, you've listened to my show, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you think I say fuck too much? Sure. <laughs> well, fucking authentic. Jeez. <laughs> I don't say it much. Well, that's good. It's not very becoming of you. No. I think that... You're much fancier than I. Are you ready? I think that I have the best sign-off line in the world. Any podcaster, any DJ, anybody. I think I have the best sign-off line. You know what it is, right? What is it? Be good to yourself. Oh, gee, yes. It's important. Now, I would like you to give me your own sign-off line. For this show okay so before i give mine and uh you know kill it closing the show because i'm awesome i want you to do your best to top mine so tj what is your sign off line uh, there was a uh, friend of mine who i who had a fabulous sense of humor and his phrase when he was leaving always was do your best scott will do the rest um because he had that drummed into him by the nuns in grade school and he made a joke of that so yeah do your best scott will do the rest and in reality that's got a lot of uh, meat to it but back then when i was a kid it was a joke so yeah do your best god will do the rest and as always be good to yourselves it is ever so important tj thank you so much for being on the show today, getting vulnerable, sharing some hope, sharing solutions, sharing you. And I know that thank you've you. saved a life tonight, so thank you. 
You are welcome. Thank you. I appreciate this. All right. Are you going to hang up, or do you want me to hang up? Should, should we hang up at the same time? Well, we could do that. Do you want to do that? Do, should we count to three? Should we one. do do it on three, or one, two, three, hang up? Or should I do it on two? Okay. You ready? We'll we'll, yep. su- we'll surprise each other. One, one, two, and as always... Be good to yourselves. It is ever so important. As always here on Authentic and keeping authentic, we have to pay credit where credit is due. Therefore, the musical stylings you heard on today's program. To kick us off, you always hear Mad Madness by Muse. Then we got into TJ's tunes. First break, you heard Already Gone by The Eagles. And at the second break, you heard Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. And to take us off. Into the night sky. Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by The Hollies. Pretty, pretty, pretty sure I know who TJ is dedicating that one to. Oh yeah, go ahead and be good to yourselves again. It's important.